The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Ms. Erica Serino. She is a science writer, author, and artist. She documents plastic pollution, plastic science, and solutions. And she translates the messages of non-human animals, often the canaries in the coal mine. And she amplifies the voices of the people unto which environmental injustices are disproportionately inflicted. She is the author of Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. It was published in 2021 by Island Press. This book dives into the plastic crisis, answering the questions of who is being harmed, who is to blame, and what we must do now to create a more just and livable post-plastic world for everyone. Ms. Serino holds degrees in environmental studies and science journalism from Stony Brook University in New York. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Well, I am thrilled. I have discovered your book and have done some research listening to you speak for different book talks and interviews And you are such a young woman to have come to such a wonderful understanding and experiences of the problem of global plastic crisis. So let's just start with, how did you first become interested in plastic pollution? Sure. Well, it actually was first in my teenage years where I became aware of the problem. I was 15 years old when I began working as a wildlife rehabilitator at a clinic in New York. And my daily tasks included caring for sick, injured, orphaned animals. And all too often, these animals had been sick or sickened or injured or unfortunately killed by humans or human actions. And these could be things as innocuous as a car driving down a street and unfortunately striking an animal, all the way to poisoning, poaching. And of course, our use of plastic was a prolific cause for wildlife to be admitted to the hospital where I worked. And so we would frequently find birds who had wings or legs, beaks and bills entangled in plastic line, animals that had swallowed plastic, owls that had been entangled in soccer nets. You know, it runs the gamut from all the different types of plastic around us. And then you begin to learn how hazardous of a material it is, especially to the creatures who are not used to using it or knowing how to avoid it. So this was when I first started learning. And then you decided to major in environmental sciences and smartly chose journalism so that you could expand your outreach with your knowledge. And you decided to take a journey on a boat and you explored the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which you write about extensively in this book. But I want to know how you found the boat, the crew, and this particular adventure. Sure. So my transition to being more of a artistic and literary person who writes about science and the problems around us actually happened because of the wildlife work and how I recognized that I was treating symptoms of problems. So I wanted to be proactive. And part of that process when I was trying to explore the story of plastic was to say, what's going to happen when I go to what I 
thought at the time, and many people actually thought at the time, thanks to the news reports, was a floating island of trash twice the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean. And I really didn't understand how was all that plastic getting out there? Where was the plastic from? What was it doing? It wasn't really apparent why that was happening and just how plagued the oceans were. At the time, I had been working for and being mentored by Carl Safina, who's a writer who writes about humanity and nature. He's actually based in Setauket, New York, at the Safina Center. And I'd been doing work with him, and he mentioned to me that he had an opportunity to go sailing with a group of scientists from Denmark who were trying to understand the depth of plastic pollution in the garbage patch. And so knowing that I was already interested in that topic, he suggested that maybe I take that spot they had initially offered to him because this crew was hoping to get creative people on board to document their work and maybe spread the message. And so I took that spot and I found myself a bunk on a boat headed towards the garbage patch. Wow, what an opportunity. You're so lucky to have been able to do this. How long did you spend on the boat? Well, there was some days of prep and then we sailed for 24 days into the garbage patch and to Honolulu, Hawaii from Los Angeles, California. As you read in the book that there were some mishaps along the way, but we made it pretty much all in one piece. And uh, luckily, once we reached Honolulu, we realized that we had uncovered more truths about the problem. And the, the trip was actually very, very useful in shedding more light on the crisis. You know, not only did we see with our own eyes that the patch itself is not really a patch, it's more of this soup of different sized plastic particles, but the problem is actually much worse than we thought because we did find plastic kind of distributed throughout the upper levels of the ocean. And others' research shows that it's going all the way from the top of the ocean to the seafloor, putting all different types of wildlife at risk. Mm. So it's not good news that we found, but it was important news. Absolutely. So you're on the boat, and tell me a little bit about your life at sea. That's a long time, 24 days. That's about a month to be without seeing land. You're out there in the middle of the ocean. How did that feel? It was incredible. You look around in the morning, and there's nothing but blue sea and sky around you. We saw a few container ships, so there was somewhat human life out there. However, most of the time, our ship was completely alone, and yeah, there was no land to be seen. To me, it became my favorite place in the world. You know, if I had to choose any place to go to now, it would be the ocean. Mm. Um, There's just an incredible amount of peace out there, in my opinion, and I really enjoyed sailing that trip. Yeah. You had described how you went from being out at sea and then going into Honolulu and just being bombarded with people and noise and stuff. And I thought that was a really interesting transition that you must have experienced. Completely. It was so jarring. And I'm glad that was conveyed to my readers in the book, it seems, because it really was this juxtaposition. And part of the reason I included that was to really just show people that there can be great joy and happiness and simplicity. And part of the problem we have with plastic is that we just use way too much of it. And it's kind of fueled this well, not kind of, it has fueled this overconsumptive lifestyle, but not just of plastic, but of all different things. And we're a very gluttonous society, not all of us, but the Western world generally is. And we have to change our ways. And I hope that showing scenes from the ocean, the simple life on the boat, and then being completely surrounded by plastic, you know, it changed me. And I hope that my readers can see that there's something wrong there. Yeah. 
I made a note, actually, from your book. That was that term exactly. The trip changed your life. And I wanted you to dive a little bit deeper into that. You know, not many of our listeners will have a chance to be in open waters for 24 days, you know, myself included. But I find personally that even when I get out and walk in the woods for an hour or two, and then I come back into the highways and the malls passing by, Mm -hmm. and even that is a little bit of a a shock to the system. And I can't imagine what it would have been like after 24 days at sea coming back into civilization, especially a civilization that is, as you say, such a consumer-based society. Right. It was so much of a transition. Well, I'm going to jump around the book a little bit because there are key parts that I want to bring forth. But you talk about ocean plastics as being a symptom of a poor upstream system of waste management, poor product design, as well as consumer littering behavior. We weren't always there. So I remember when we didn't have as many plastic items, things came in glass. We wrapped leftovers in foil. I remember when Tupperware became a thing. So I have lived through a bit of this transition in my own lifetime of going from truly reusing things to one Mm -hmm. of this single-use plastic mentality. And I remember from your book where you talk about the bulk of the plastic that is found in the ocean is from these single-use plastic applications. Did I read that correctly? I would say that much of the plastic that escapes into our environment generally, most of that is single-use plastic. It's hard to quantify the exact amount in the oceans, but we know generally from records, waste records and recent research that it seems 79% of the plastic that we've used as humanity over time, which is 6.3 billion metric tons, is in landfills in the environment. Much of that is single-use. I don't think it's possible to quantify exactly how much is single-use because so much is just made and discarded on a regular basis. So it's extremely difficult to quantify, but it's a lot. It's a lot of trash out there, yeah, and a lot of it's in the ocean. And so much of it, is used in our food system. At least that's the plastic that I am certainly most aware of. Or, you know, when I go into the supermarket, after reading more about plastic, it hits you like plastic water bottles or plastic beverages further wrapped in plastic. Or in the meat case, you've got the styrofoam trays further wrapped in plastic. Again, the answer to the problem has been directed towards consumers, however, we, right. we need to recycle. We need to – it's all on us rather than right. looking at what you talk about as being this upstream problem. Right. So we have to realize that the recycling myth, as many people will call it, this truth actually is that much of what we put in our recycling bins is not recycled. And unfortunately, some of it is shipped to foreign countries and then people in those countries are faced with trash. Sometimes it's sent to landfills, sometimes it's sent to incinerators, and none of these are great ways to get rid of the garbage. You know, it's just being pushed away somewhere else. So there really is no such place as a way for plastic. And, of course, plastic does not biodegrade like many other materials do. And so if we're looking at recycling and looking at the messages we get, you know, municipalities have told communities to recycle 
but also oil and gas companies and plastic companies have told, and the plastic lobby has told people to recycle. So I don't know if listeners are familiar with the Keep America Beautiful campaigns, such as the poorly named Crying Indian campaign that millions and millions of people have seen on TV over the years. And these are all campaigns designed to make people feel guilty for littering and not for using plastic, but for littering and for making the environment ugly. So it's keeping everything beautiful is the intention. And so we we picked this apart and we realized, okay, these big marketing teams have put this information out there, these marketing materials. What's the actual facts? Well, only 9% of all the plastic ever made has been recycled. So clearly there's a failure there. Clearly recycling is not going to help. And so I outlined that in my book, just putting these facts out there because that's what's really important right now. We're starting to learn that there's so much greenwashing, so-called greenwashing going on, designed to keep plastic companies in business, keep big corporations in business, and it's at the detriment of the rest of us who have to live in a polluted world. Exactly. Erica, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Ms. Erica Serino. She is a science writer, author, and artist. And she is the author of the book we're discussing titled Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. It was published in 2021 by Island Press. So I'm glad you brought up PR campaigns and greenwashing because it's an area certainly of interest of mine in the food system. And yes, there are huge public relations campaigns. There are also trade associations that work on behalf of industries that might say that they care about plastic pollution. I'm thinking specifically of two that you pointed out in the book, like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, but they belong to trade associations that actually work against reducing plastic use or more plastic production. So let's talk a little bit about that. What would you like our listeners to know? So companies have a lot of pressure on them right now to actually change their ways because consumers or people who are buying these products are realizing that sustainability is important. Our earth is not looking so great. And all it takes is a look around to see trash around us. And clearly, we know that there is a problem. I think awareness of the plastic crisis has only grown as media reports of whales full of plastic, animals being entangled in plastic. They just keep coming out. And I think there is awareness growing. And companies are feeling more pressure to create products that are sustainable. However, the problem arises when it's just more consumption and it's not, like you said before, about reusing things. So it really kind of has to be this transition to a more reusable culture and future in order to work because we will just keep facing the same problem with having trash piling up around us if we keep buying more stuff and replacing plastic with something else. Right. And I love a question that you have put forth both in your book and in some other interviews that I heard. You say, we all need to ask ourselves what do I need to live and what can I live without? And boy, if you stop and really consider that, there's so much we don't need to live with. And if we could just start consuming less, that might not fit with our capitalistic economic model. But if we are going to survive on this planet, we've got to start thinking about using much less to live and live happily as you found on the boat. Right. And there are people out there who do live 
more sustainably and and different cultures who have have had long histories of living in harmony with the earth I'm thinking specifically of indigenous peoples and really like looking around recognizing that justice for humanity and justice for the often racialized groups that have been kept out of being treated equally and with fairness if we can bring justice to those groups of people that's another big part of my book we can also start healing the earth but it really will take acknowledging the colonial ideas that have gotten us to this place, the exploitive, extractive ways of life, and really it has to be this systemic shift because otherwise it's not going to work. Just reiterating that, but there's a lot of issues of plastic that they really are life or death for people and people alive today. So super concerning problem. Absolutely. And I think that you make a good point about you know, your first experiences with the animal kingdom and how you saw the damage that was brought on to animals who had become entangled in fishing wires and those six-pack rings and such and the straw up the sea turtle's nose. I mean, I think those images are important, but when you start realizing that plastic is everywhere, it is affecting animals that are non-human, But your book also points out, and I want to read a section from page 100 and 101, where you describe scientists looking at small tissue samples across maternal pregnancies. So they had, I believe it was six healthy women's pregnancies. The scientists took small tissue samples across the maternal and fetal sides of each placenta And from the amniotic sacs that held the baby's developing fetuses, four of the six placentas contained microplastic across all areas inspected. Wow. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yes, it is. And if we think for a moment that we are not becoming somewhat plastic ourselves, we would be foolish, right? Of course. And... The more that I studied plastic in the lab, as detailed in the book, you know, looking at it really up close, I do see plastic in our foods. I've seen it as I open things and packages. So it can fall into our food. It does fall into our food. We are eating it. It's just a matter of what does it do to us and what are the, what is the chemical implications of that? We don't know that either. Right. A lot of chemicals in plastic. Well, and you further write, if tiny plastic particles can circulate human bloodstreams, as the placental research suggests, micro and nanoplastics may also accumulate in our bodies while leaching poisons that harm our immune systems and put us at increased risk of serious disease. Exactly. So if we are going to stop the flow of more plastics being produced, and it appears to me that the plastic industry is really banking on more plastic production because that's where the profits are, right? And communities that have tried to put a stop on single-use plastics, for example, or plastic bags, they have found a hard fight because there have been state preemptive laws. There are statewide preemptive plastic bans. So the state will prevent a local community from having a plastic ban, in other words. Right. So what do we do? Well, we have to hold our local municipalities, lawmakers, officers, and on a federal level as well, and ultimately an international level, but holding those who have the power to help implement solutions, we have to hold them accountable. 
And part of that includes pushing for transparency because many communities don't realize that there's continued plastic development happening. And unfortunately for many communities, it's happening right in their backyards. And this could be anything from a new waste sorting facility, for example, which brings diesel trucks and diesel exhaust and particulate matter in addition to garbage, sounds, potentially fires and disasters right to your backyard, all the way to plastic facilities. And so to keep on top of what's happening in your town is super important. And the strongest communities that I visited were communities that they spoke to each other, they met regularly, everyone kept an eye on each other, and it does take somewhat of an approach of constant vigilance. And it shouldn't be this way, we must say, but I think in order to change things and get on the right track, All of us need to come together in our own communities and start implementing solutions. You know, we have to walk the walk if we talk the talk, so to speak. And so if we care about our health and our our future of our planet, we really should come together and start doing things to, to help. And there is legislation, is that correct, on the national level? Do you want to touch on that? Sure. So we have passed a national piece of plastic legislation about microbeads. So this is a a piece of legislation that Obama signed into law, and it prevents microbeads, which are these small plastic beads, basically, I would say, the size of the end of a pen or pencil. They could be very tiny, and they're often used as kind of an abrasive medium in health and beauty products like facial scrubs, hand soaps, etc. And so also toothpaste. But these were found in so many products because they are they are useful for skin care in some ways, but at the same time, you know, you're rubbing plastic on your skin and they're there to replace natural materials like clays and sands and even crushed nutshells and things like that. Plastic is just simply cheaper. And so if you think about it, you buy certain beauty products, those are also somewhat fossil fuel based, some of them. And then you're adding plastic beads, which are fossil fuel based, in a plastic container. And you just think about that whole package there. And it's just such a, um, a mess. And so luckily, the Microbead Act, it stopped retailers from selling products made out of these microbeads and then further stopped production of them kind of in a, a rolled out way. So first it was stopping the sale and then it was stopping the production. And there are microbead bans in several countries and several places around the world. However, it's not a global ban. And so these products are still out there. They're still emptying microbeads into the waterways, into the ocean. And it's just kind of a ready-made microplastic, ready to be swallowed up by a fish or a bird or whatnot. They do work on some level to reduce our local plastic burden. So yes, it's good to have a microbead ban in some countries. But we really need it to be all over the world. And we're going to keep running into this issue with piecemeal plastic solutions unless we really all get on board and do something serious about plastic. What about the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act? Do you want to, Do you have an update on that? Sure. It's not passed yet. It's still out there and being fought for by many people. But this is an act that would be an extremely comprehensive piece of legislation for the U.S. And so... We can't really necessarily wait around for global action on the plastic crisis, but we can start on varying scales. And so to go on a national level in the U.S. would be a very big move for a country that's actually the world's biggest plastic polluter. So if we can somewhat address that, that would be great. However, this act keeps stalling. And so to share more information about it, it takes a look at the many areas of the plastic life cycle. So plastic life cycle is supposedly endless because it will just it could 
possibly be used over and over, but it will also last forever whether or not it's used. So if we can use plastic intelligently, and it is a very useful substance, so in medicine it's made great advances. We all have been seeing a lot of plastic around us during the COVID pandemic. However, we need to stop using it where it doesn't need to be used and start changing the way that we do things, again, to that more sustainable reuse kind of mindset circular mindset, as some people call it. But this piece of legislation would do various things. I'm not going to go through them all because we don't have that much time. But it would essentially hold the people that make and sell plastic accountable, strengthening environmental justice for the communities that are worst affected, be more transparent about the chemicals in plastic to understand the toxic risks, and then also push for better design and hold companies accountable generally financially as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many aspects of this legislation. Something similar has passed in Europe, and it's now rolling into effect. But one of the issues that they're seeing there is that it's not consistently enforced across all EU member states. So you have different countries, differing differing levels of compliance and effect. So probably something we could expect in the U.S. as well, something national passed would be state-by-state variants. But we have to try something. So it's good that this proposed legislation is out there. And I think that it does, it should do a lot. I mean, it seems like those who are are pushing for it do know what they're talking about, for sure. So something to take a look at and promote. Well, yeah, and I'll provide a link to that so people can understand exactly what that act covers. I think we also have to look at this idea of cheaper You know, I've had food producers tell me that they don't package their product in glass because either they can't find a glass container or it costs more money to ship. And I think that we can't just look at shipping costs alone. We have to look at the total planetary costs of plastic, including its effects on human health. Right, completely. Yeah, so I've seen those statistics too before, and it's a favorite claim of any proponent of plastic, and actually it's one of the claims um, made by the top plastic trade associations actually to say that plastic is part of a lower carbon future. But how can that be if plastic itself is made out of carbon, it's made out of oil and gas? So it's just very nonsensical, these arguments. And there does have to be this holistic look, because if you're pouring toxins into the environment, if there are huge environmental justice concerns, clearly there needs to be further evaluation of what we're doing here instead of just pushing to keep using plastic and arguing that that's better. There are a lot of other ways that we can do things too. Right. And your book goes into those. You have a large section on solutions. I didn't get into a section that I was hoping to, and that was St. James Parish in Louisiana and how a community is fighting the Formosa plastics industry from coming in and producing yet more toxic chemicals related to plastic construction. Right. And I also didn't talk about how plastics contribute to climate change, which is another important section of your book. We've just got a few seconds. Do you have one last charge for our listeners before we close? Yeah, there's so much to say, right? However, I would put it out there that we really do need to consider those questions. You know, what do we need to live and what can we live without? And that was actually something that I asked myself. You know, I really do try to hold myself accountable too. And I think when we can start looking at the plastic issue from a fact-based, truth-based angle and look at the suffering that it causes, we'll all better be able to come together and arrive at solutions. I agree. And I think there are a great couple of questions to ask, especially at the beginning of a new year. So thank you for that. In closing, 
Oh, of course. In closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Erica Serino, science writer, author, and artist. She is the author of Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis, Island Press 2021. Thank you so much for your hard work and the beautiful stories that you tell in this book. Thank you. Such a pleasure talking to you.